Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Many of the listeners of Spirit in Action probably live in areas with a large liberal-leaning and pacifist-friendly populations, though some may be listening via podcast from within more conservative areas. Today's Spirit in Action guests, both strongly pacifist, moved to areas that were overwhelmingly and oppressively military-oriented and had to figure out how to deal with that, both for themselves and for their families. Lucretia Humphrey's journey took her to Great Falls, Montana, surrounded by nuclear warheads, and Molly Wingate ended up in Colorado Springs in the midst of a number of military bases. They co-wrote an article for Western Friend, Two Quakers Living with the Military, in which they explore the issues and experience of being of a tiny pacifist minority swallowed up in a sea of military minds. In this age of extreme polarization, it's more important than ever to understand how to communicate and connect beyond our political silos without giving up on our principles. Lucretia Humphrey and Molly Wingate will help us develop these kinds of skills as they join us via Zoom. Lucretia, I'm so happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And Molly, so glad you could join me from Colorado also today. Happy to be here. I read your article just, what, a couple weeks ago, Two Quakers Living with the Military, and said, these are two folks I want to really talk to. In the interim, then, I heard the interview that was done by Soul Force Ones. Jonathan Stoll did that for Western Friend Podcast. I thought that was wonderful. So now I know all the best questions to ask you because Jonathan led the way. So first of all, because I'm assuming that our listeners for Spirit in Action haven't read the article yet, although I'll have a link to it on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, let's talk about a couple of the key points. Lucretia, you live in Montana, small town there, but you're surrounded by the military. Tell me about your situation. Well, we moved here in uh, 1985, and we had two small children at that time. We moved to Great Falls, Montana from Olympia, Washington, and we moved back here because of my husband's family and a family business. And I remember thinking, oh, I can do anything. I can take on an adventure. That's been part of my nature. But I found it much more difficult than I could have imagined. So that sort of sets the tone for where I started from here in Montana. We also had just come away from Olympia where they'd been talking about the nukes on the submarines and the naval base up in Puget Sound and realizing the horrors again of nuclear missiles. And lo and behold, didn't we land right in the middle of a nuclear missile base at that time? And we were in the bullseye. Malmstrom Air Force Base's only mission at this time, at least, they had some other missions along the way, but is taking care of these nuclear missiles that are buried in our prairie. Oh, that sounds very challenging. And Molly, your experience with moving to Colorado Springs. Yeah, I moved to Colorado Springs for employment, and I was single at the time. I had lived in a conservative small town in Pennsylvania, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, 
and attended a small Quaker meeting there. And so Colorado Springs, I thought, would be kind of more of the same, a conservative town with a small Quaker presence. The thing is that Colorado Springs, of course, it's grown in the years that I've been here, but now it's almost half a million people. So it's a big conservative town. (laughs) But it's also utterly surrounded by various arms of the military and growing in military. The other thing that's true for both of you is you were already Quaker identified before you moved there. That includes for many, maybe most Quakers, I guess I'd say, almost all Quakers, some connection with pacifism. Lucretia, could you tell me about how you thought about military, about pacifism? Is this something you grew up with or is this a Quaker appendage that you added on? I started out as a child of the 70s, 60s and Vietnam War and seeing the horrors of that war and working against it in every way I could having a very deep spiritual feeling about different things. And in college, I had to take a Christian heritage class. And my paper back in college, my freshman or sophomore year, was pacifism with its basis in Jesus. You know, it seemed like that was part of being a Christian. And I didn't see too many of the mainstream churches doing that. So I was drawn to Quakerism from that place, although it was a longer, arduous journey. I didn't do that jump until I was in my mid-20s. But it just seemed like that was the way I wanted to live my life. So therefore, whatever helped make peace in the world would help. Probably I had some personal agenda too. I needed to live more peacefully in my own heart. And I thought maybe that would help too. Were you Christian? Were you identified with the church before you started your journey towards Quakers? Yes, I had grown up the Presbyterian church, and then we changed to the Methodist church. And in college, I did the Congregational UCC Church. And in the Peace Corps, I visited the local Methodist Church and I visited the local Catholic Church and just sort of hung out trying to figure out what all this meant and kind of came away with it doesn't matter. It's where love is to be found. And then when I came back, I sort of started over very briefly and immediately dropped all the mainstream expressions of Christianity and went to an unprogrammed meeting in Boston where I was in graduate school. Let's talk about your situation, Molly. You're Quaker identified. Did you start out that way? Oh, no. I was raised in lots of places. My family moved quite a lot. By the time I was in seventh grade, I was in seven schools, different parts of the country. But a constant was that my family went to church and my family went to Presbyterian churches. So I kind of got various versions of different Presbyterian churches dogma along the way. We moved to southeastern Pennsylvania in Chester County, which has, in many cases, a fallen down meeting house in every township. And so I was surrounded by the apparitions of friends while I was there. I had a lot of issues with the belief systems that I was being taught in Presbyterian churches and particular issues with, well, if they sang Onward Christian Soldiers one more time, I was going to choke on the spot, and other things that I just couldn't tolerate it. And I was a serious kid, and I was serious about my faith. And as soon as I could drive, I started driving to different churches. In my neighborhood, there were Baptist churches and Methodist churches. And my grandfather, who lived with us, was Catholic, and I went to Mass with him. And, you know, didn't click. And eventually I was with one of my older sisters who was living in New Jersey. 
And she said, you know, I've started going to this Quaker meeting. I think you might like it. And so I was like 16, 15, 16 years old. And I walked in and I went, oh, <laughs> you know, okay, nobody's going to tell me what to think or what to believe or any of that stuff. And there had been a situation when the minister in my Presbyterian church had corrected my younger sister on how she was holding a chalice. <laughs> I just lost it. And, you know, I was a kid. And nobody was passing chalices around or any of that nonsense. So I felt very much at home. And when I returned back to my family's home in southeastern Pennsylvania, and I put it that way because we lived on a farm, I could drive to a, a meeting that was about 10 miles away. And I started attending there. So the thing that both of you eventually arrived at is your own pacifist stance, your own peace-leaning. And uh, as you just said, Molly, you're not told what to believe in a Quaker meeting. There is an influence, there is uh, openness, there's information that comes in that most people don't see. What got you to be a pacifist? You know, I think I came out that way. My father was military. My father was a very proud U.S. Navy submariner in World War II. I lived with a rifle, a shotgun, and a pistol hanging on a gun rack in the living room. There was a lot of hunting and things like that. But, you know, there was just a real acceptance of solving problems through violence. And I didn't like it. I kept reading the commandments and going, about the thou shalt not kill. Can we talk about that? Nobody really wanted to, you know, I was that kid, you know, and they patted me on the head and said, you know, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. So that was part of it. Part of it, of course, was the Vietnam era. So, you know, I, I very much remember, you know, Vietnam was the first war that was on television. And I remember watching the nightly news going, oh, this is such a bad idea. Also, knowing my friends and my, sis my older sister's friends who were going to war. And what a bad idea that was. And I wrote to them and I sent them books and all kinds of things. But, you know, this was just a bad idea. I remember sitting in my living room, one of the cities on the East Coast, I think it was Newark, New Jersey was in flames. And there was Vietnam War stuff. And then there was residual discussion of what had happened at Kent State. And I was like, no, I have to go in a different direction. And I did. And I mean, I also had my older sister who was going in that direction, too. Lucretia, I'm curious about your name. Anybody who's around Quakers at all, Lucretia Mott is a very well-known name from the mid-1800s, anti-slavery activist, and one of those people who gets women's rights moving in the United States. Did you adopt Lucretia over the years, or were you born with that name? How did you get that in your Presbyterian family? Well, it turns out that my grandmother was named Lucretia. I don't know how she got her name. I never heard that she was a Quaker. She came out of Missouri, actually. They never called her Lucretia until I was born. They called her Ludie. And my dad was trying to find a name for his firstborn child. And he said, well, what about my mother's name? And my mother said, really, Ludie? He's no Lucretia. And so that's how I got it. And then when I got to be a Quaker, I was really astounded because I hadn't known about Lucretia Mott yet. And on a calendar, probably put out by FSC or somebody, here was Lucretia Mott's birthday, and it was the same as mine. Now, that really was a... <laughs> well, I looked it up, and it's one day off, actually. So I can't claim it's the exact same day, but it's the next day. My husband is a gym 
Hers was James. I mean, there's some bizarre things. And I've <laughs> burden on my shoulders that I should be doing more in my life sometimes. But it's also amusing. And I do keep a little picture of her about one of her famous quotes in my bedroom to remind me of where I'm going and what I want to be. So it is kind of a fascinating piece of what happened to me serendipitously. <laughs> I will say there is a funny thing that happened because my father only is, well, I had an older father and as he was dying, I was telling him I was thinking about the Quakers and he said, you know, that's really interesting. Your grandfather was a Mennonite. And I said, really? Huh? I'd never known this grandfather because everybody in our family was very old when they had kids. So we never got in on all the generational stuff. And indeed, my grandfather was part of the Lancaster, Pennsylvania family. Oh. About 11 kids in it, and he was the only one who left that area. And my name was always an odd name for Western Washington, Metzler, but it's extremely common in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I'm saying it's genetic. <laughs> well, and what people may or may not know who are listening to Spirit in Action today, Mennonites, Brethren, and Quakers are the three historic peace churches. So what I want to ask you about that, Lucretia, is in the article, you regularly refer to yourself as pacifist or pacifist ideas. What is a pacifist in your view, Lucretia? Well, for me, it's an act of faith. I've realized the last year and then along with Ukraine and everything else, it's a way of focusing. It's a way of looking at the world and I actually had this kind of little glimmer one day that I feel so content to be part of the earth. And I feel like my whole being and my faith statement is connected to spirit. It doesn't save me from everything about myself and my personality or my ego, but it does give me a direction that I keep working towards. What I would actually do is my son asked me most recently, mom, I have to ask you a question. How can you really be a pacifist with the Ukraine going on? And I said, I really don't know what I would do. But my ideal hope is that I could die being a pacifist so I didn't take somebody else's life because they need a chance to learn this incredible connection to spirit and to the earth that I have been able to view from time to time in my best moments of some sort. It's a way of life. It's trying to prevent the violent things that happen in our world. But on the other hand, I have to still deal with my own issues around anger my own things that come up with myself. So it's a focus. It's a way of looking towards a better world. And Molly, for you, in the midst of Colorado Springs, all the military bases around you, what does pacifism mean for you? It's peacemaking, right? Pace, facere. Those are the roots. And it's an action. When I am in action, am I making peace or am I making trouble? Or is it, you know, good trouble is okay. <laughs> but you know, am I stirring things up or am I helping people to come to an understanding that violence is not the way to do things? So that's like stupid things like driving. I'm the most peaceful driver you ever saw. And if somebody starts acting strange, I just pull over, hmm. you know, and my kids were like, why do you do that? And I said, because I am carrying the most precious cargo God ever gave me and I'm not endangering it. So just take us out of danger, you know, and they're boys. So, you know, <laughs> didn't all rub off. But I think that it's a way of living. It's a way of doing everything. You know, it's kind of this, the standard against which I measure all things. Is this contributing to what I see as the beloved community and good things? Or is it not? You know, I don't always measure up. 
but you know, it's a goal. And I think that, you know, being a pacifist is not being a coward and being a pacifist doesn't mean you don't get injured or worse. I taught at Colorado College, and while I was there, I was the advisor for the, a minor in nonviolence briefly, and I did a symposium on nonviolence. Eventually, one of the history department members asked me to come in, and he was a real big war scholar, you know, and I kept hassling him. You should invite me in. You're only telling half the story of World War II. I know a whole lot more. And eventually he relented, brought me in, and he introduced me as a parasite on society. Mm. And I said, okay, fine, whatever. And we marched ahead. I mean, he was being unpleasant, but unpleasant people are everywhere. You know, so I just kind of moved on. But my lesson to these kids is that the solution to these problems, yeah, sure, this battle happened and this state happened. But what you may not know is that there was the like the White Rose Society in Germany during World War II doing all sorts of things. And the, the Norwegian teachers and all this other stuff was going on. So learn the other part of the story. And I'm happy to share it with you. And so that's kind of what I see being a pacifist is helping people find the other choices. You know, Molly, you lived in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. I did. Moved to Colorado Springs. And again, folks, by the way, we're, so you know these names by the time we're done. Molly Wingate, who is who I'm speaking to right now. And just previously, I was speaking with Lucretia Humphrey. So you moved from what you describe as a conservative Pennsylvania small town to a much bigger, but definitely conservative. Is that fair to say? You, you label it as military, but then on the other hand, you point out that there's a Justice and Peace Commission. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a governmental or private. No, no, no. That's private. Okay. Because when you've got near half a million people, even a small minority can be a significantly coherent peace group or peace justice group. Do you feel like you have a, enough like-minded individuals that you're surrounded in and not a peace bubble, but at least your walls are not covered with pro-military people? I don't know if that makes sense to you, but... I feel like I am me no matter where I go. And I know that there are like-minded people around. There's been a meeting in Colorado Springs since 1955. So when I moved to Colorado Springs, what's different here is that it's much more conservative and more vocally conservative. Central Pennsylvania is a very conservative place, but Colorado Springs is the home of, you may or may not have ever heard of Focus on the Family. Uh, And that ministry, it's here. So the peace community, like I said, the meeting's been around since 1955. In 87, they became a monthly meeting. But there had been like a Catholic worker kind of thing going on for a long time. They were very well organized around Citizens for Peace in Space when I first got here, as Star Wars was beginning, all those other activities. So I can always find a group of people to talk to. But my life does not revolve around those people all the time. I still have to go to the bank. I still have to figure out what to do with retirement funds and know you can invest in the military. You know, and as we said in the article, we raised kids in this and our kids were out and about. And so, you know, we would have necessary interactions. I don't know if you're going there, but I'll go there. One of the biggest things about living where we live is that we're targets. 
So I read a thing that Colorado Springs is the 10th target for if you want to knock out the United States. That awareness doesn't leave. So that's very different from being in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, along the gently flowing Susquehanna River and and the rolling hills and all that. You know, that was never a target. Yeah. By the way, congratulations on being a parasite. I... (laughs) (laughs) I think that's some kind of a mark of distinction or something. If someone who hasn't examined the full story sees you as bad, you know, when, when someone who's got it wrong sees you as wrong, that means you're right, right? Two negatives make... He was joking in a way, but he was making clear his perspective. Sure. And I can respond in kind, and I did. Lucretia, you've got a different situation. I think your town is something like 60,000 instead of half a million. So is there a sizable or a notable or a supportive peace and justice component, pacifist oriented maybe to your community? Well, when we arrived in 1985, I looked around and I didn't see it anywhere very visibly. And then I started poking a little harder And I thought, well, you know, the Catholics have always been good on peace. I'll see what the sisters or the priests are doing. So I called up the local diocese and told them I wanted to know about Pax Christi. And they had no clue what I was talking about. And I said, well, um, aren't there any sisters or any priests in the community that are against the military buildup or something or the nuclear missiles? Oh, well, actually, you know, there's a priest out in the north east part of Montana. That's a very isolated place. And he might know somebody that is here in Great Falls. So I called him up. He was totally blown away. As it turned out, I think he was sent there because he'd made so much noise in Great Falls. But on the other hand, in Montana, we had a Bishop Hunthausen, and the Catholic Church moved him over to Seattle so that he wouldn't be too prolific here, I'm afraid. Um, But meanwhile, he told me of a woman, and indeed, she was born here in Great Falls, and she just had a different drummer that she listened to. She was an amazing human being. She is an amazing human being. And she had started a newspaper, and she called a group SALT, and she'd already gone over to Bangor and been part of a trial about people that had stopped the white train at that time. So she was there, and then I learned about maybe two or three other people And then along came World Without War at some point. Meanwhile, people from Missoula, which is known as much more liberal than Great Falls, would come up here on an Easter Sunday, and we would demonstrate at the base. And that went on for about, well, until the Berlin Wall came down, right, in 92 or so. And we spent that time demonstrating, and then some people would cross the white line, as we said, and they'd go to jail, and then we'd go and hear their trial, and they'd spend two or three days in jail. We took our children. I later found out that my dear children were scared that I would do that. They wouldn't have a mommy. So it's it's kind of interesting. You try to share with your children what's important to you, but sometimes you overdo it. That was one thing for quite a while. There was no Quaker group here. And so I said, well, we can go to the UCC church. They had a pretty liberal background. The pastor befriended us. Everybody was extremely kind and friendly. They still are. After all these 37 years, we still are in touch with a lot of those people. But I was dismissed because I was a Quaker. It was very interesting. What I wanted to say or share always ended up kind of, well, you know, that's because she's a Quaker. We don't have to go along with that. And the minister actually came to lunch one time and he said, you know, I'm going to share with you that I totally wholeheartedly believe where you're coming from. 
but I can't let people know or we won't have anybody from the base in our church. So, okay, okay. And he himself had been a pacifist during the Vietnam War, hiding out skiing in Colorado. But he asked us not to say anything about that to anybody at that time. And now you've put it on radio. Wow. (laughs) He was a great guy, but that was interesting. So that year, he said, Lucretia, I have a conference for you to go to. And it was in California, and it was talking about hungry children and Star Wars, putting them juxtaposed to each other to see the waste in our country about how much money was being spent on Star Wars versus hungry children. And I came back very fired up, very fired up. And I was incredibly disappointed when he didn't let me ever speak in the church about what I experienced. Oh, wow. So you had to start a Quaker meeting there. (laughs) Kind of part of the beginning of that. Yeah. And that was in February. And by that summer, I said, my husband pointed out, you know, you always come home upset and angry. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly where we're supposed to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> well, folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. Our guests today are Lucretia Humphrey and Molly Wingate. I got in touch with them because of an article in Western Friend, and I'll have a link to that article on northernspiritradio.org. You'll find links to all of our guests of the past 17 years we've been doing this. There's now some 45 stations nationwide carrying our programs. So wherever you're listening from, from. I hope you're supporting that community radio station near you. They provide a slice of news and of music culture that you just don't get elsewhere. Mainstream has to be diluted down, just as Lucretia just mentioned. You know, if you want to bring everybody in, you have to have something that's not too strong tasting. It's insipid enough that everyone can say, well, I guess I can tolerate that. So community radio stations can go beyond that. So please support them with your hands and with your wallet. We've got all of our guests, the hundreds and thousands actually at this point, who have been doing world healing work on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Post a comment when you come and visit. When you listen to this interview with Molly and with Lucretia, please let us know your reactions, your thoughts, your experiences, wherever you are, because we're talking with them, especially because they've had to deal with a tough situation. They moved to an area which was overwhelmingly pro-military, and they brought their Quaker identity as pacifists with them. There's so much about this that we could talk about, both Lucretia and Molly, Kids is a real important issue, a real difficult one, because a lot of times people step back because they don't want it to land on their kids. You tell one story about marching band and your son being in there. I think that's you, Lucretia, right? Your son was in marching band, and do you want to perform for something that's going to be essentially supporting the military? Could you tell that story, please? Well, it kind of came up very rapidly. Suddenly, Malmstrom Air Force Base, where we're living, was up for having an evaluation by people out of Washington, D.C. Should this base continue? Should this base continue to be a nuclear missile base? Should it have a different mission? And so all the brass came out from Washington, D.C. and whipped around our town. And my son in middle school was asked to go out and stand in front of his middle school which is on the main drag, Central Avenue, while this parade of people zoomed up one side and down the other side several times and people moved from one side of the street to the other side to wave and cheer these people on and tell them, yes, we love the military. I'm not sure how many times they did that. I'm not sure of the timing now, but I called up the, a school board member I knew and it was Holy Week. And I said, well, you know, this is kind of a Holy Week. I think it's a good idea not to be encouraging nuclear bombs during Holy Week. He had no idea what I was talking about. 
And finally, we got down to the bottom line, which was, you're always welcome to take your son out of a difficult or a place where you don't agree. So that night at dinner, I said, I talked to Mr. So-and-so and and said, "Um, you don't have to go, you know, one of the rules in the school is that children don't have to be out there. And he said, mom, how can I not be in the band? I'm part of the band. So it was too hard for him. He's always been a very inward looking kid that's rather shy. So this was not where he wanted to take his stand at that moment in time. So we just let that one flow on by. But um, and I, as I talk about this, I wonder where, what he'd think about now. He was also the one very fearful that we would go to jail and he might not see his mom again. So, Did you have any of those issues, Molly? Well, the thing about going to jail, one of the things that happened to me is I was a marcher in Washington, D.C. and in New York when I was on the East Coast. But then I acquired asthma. Kind of my rule of thumb is to not put myself in a place where I'm likely to become a real burden. I haven't put myself in a place where I could get arrested or tear gassed since because I could get really sick. My kids were safe from that. My kids wanted me to tone it down occasionally. And maybe one of the better stories is that when I wanted to put bumper stickers on my car, we had a family meeting and they were like, no, mom, no. Because they played competitive soccer and lacrosse, and there were lots and lots of military families and officers' families involved in that. And they just said, look, there's nothing wrong with having a plain vanilla car. You are still going to be the person driving it, and you are still going to be the person on the sideline, but we don't need to invite trouble. You know, I said, fine, plain vanilla Subaru, just like everybody else. (laughs) But you know, my kids have taken, you know, some of, some of the pacifism stuff with them and took them to school. Not that they didn't, you know, get in fights from time to time, but they stuck up for kids who got bullied. They would, you know, take on counseling positions, you know, or volunteer for that, which is, for one, his personality was completely ill-suited. And they said, you know, maybe not. But that was kind of their leaning was to find a way for people to work together. But they were also very competitive, serious athletes. And one of the big challenges in our house is about sportsmanship. Our family is very dedicated to the sport, Ultimate Frisbee. There's a lot you can learn about that. But one fundamental thing is that at even the international level of non-professional play, there are no referees. You call your own foul. So that's a big deal. That's a big mindset shift. Both my kids decided to play ultimate. They just didn't want to put up with fighting with people about stuff all the time. So that was some of the ways in which it took on. Nobody ever complained about me at my work. I've also worked for myself for the last 22 years. So (laughs) I live on the edge of Colorado Springs. I live in a little mountain town on the edge called Manitou Springs which is sort of the antidote to Colorado Springs in some ways. And so it's an arts town and I fit right in here. But when we were part of the bigger community, it was like, I would cheer the other team if they had a good play. And they're like, that is my mother. You're just going to have to deal with her, that kind of thing. Both my boys taking the ASFAB armed services. It's a test that the military gives to see what you would be good at. And my oldest kid sort of got roped into taking it and didn't understand what was happening. And he got a lot. They were like, oh, man, you know, you should consider. He's like, no, thank you. And the younger one said, I'm not even taking that. So that's the kind of interactions. 
you know, and people would see me bannering on the corner and they would honk and we would wave. My son, I don't know that I've been more proud of him than when one thing he did during eighth grade. He's raised as Quaker. He has those influences, but he's an extremely quiet and shy individual was. And, you know, he, he's been able to balance a little bit of that as an adult, but it's still his nature. So for him to question anything, even ask a question in class was a challenge. And his eighth grade class, civics class, they were supposed to each make a square to be part of a quilt to honor someone who's in the military. They were supposed to interview someone and make a quilt square for them, and this would all be assembled. Kind of a banner thing that gets hung in various public places. And he came home to me, and this is where he just amazed me. Again, he doesn't want to say a single question, doesn't want to be noticed, anything. But he said, Dad, they want me to do this, interview someone who's been in the military and put it on the board. And I don't think I should. And so I talked to him for a while, and I said, did you ask the teacher? And he says, oh, I can't do that. But <laughs> we talked for a while, and I said, well, but you could make him an alternate proposal. You could interview someone like me, who's been in the Peace Corps, like Lucretia was, right? So I served my country for two years, and you can interview me, and you could include that in Square. Well, he took that to his teacher. The teacher thought that was a great idea. So everyone else is honoring the military, and here's one for the Peace Corps. But the fact that he brought it up, and with zero pressure from me, I just supported him, whatever he wanted to do. That was the time I was incredibly proud of him. And he did file for a selective service when he turned 18 without questioning. And he wasn't positive whether he would file as a conscience objector or not. In later years, he was clear. But at 18, he wasn't positive. Was this just my Quaker upbringing that tilted me in this direction? What happened with your kids? Well, my kids signed up for selective service, primarily because if they didn't, they wouldn't be eligible for any federal financial aid, and they knew that they wanted an education. Other people have figured out how to work that around, but that was the choice we all made. But we wrote all over it about doing this under protest, you know, da, 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 that kind of thing. And our meeting had become is a repository for people who want to have documentation about their status as a conscientious objector. So the boys had all kinds of stuff in there in case they got called up quickly and had to prove it quickly. You know, this is proof over time that this is how they've been thinking. Interestingly, a really out loud and face forward pacifist in Colorado Springs who was a leader for many of us in the peace world, a former priest and community activist named Steve Handon was on the draft board for years. So it was like, oh, this is what you have to do. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and I said, how do you do it? And he goes, I just needle him. <laughs> I just needle him. He's in the right place to be helping out on that. Yeah. So he was, it was perfect, but he was very helpful. So that's what my kids did. What did yours do, Lucretia? Um, my kids did not. They were more like Mark's son. Yeah, they just sort of said, Mom, what can we do? We have to do it. You know, it was kind of like, I'm not sure what I think. And it wasn't really until my son, the second son that was involved with Quakers the most, realized what he did not want to do. And that was when he got big, big offers to run a nuclear submarine and get this huge scholarship. And did you really want to do this? And suddenly he said, absolutely not. You know, it's kind of an evolution. 
of, I said, I think it's very important to remember they're only 18. Another reason that they're asked to sign up when they don't even know what they want to. That same son is now in the jet engine industry, and he refuses to get the clearance that he needs to do military work. So my heart is full and glad. And my other son has gone his own direction, but it certainly is admirable. And I feel proud of him in his own way, too. He doesn't have the same right at the edge of my livelihood, and he hasn't put himself quite in the same place. It is moving to see how they do that decision. And I think you're absolutely right, Lucretia, that the fact that they want to draft people, get them in the military, they really want you to sign up when you're 17 before you have any sense of what the balances of the world are really about. Both the fact that many teens think they're invulnerable, they won't die from anything. But in addition, they're not really taking into account all the compassion that they could have for the world yet. So I think that age is chosen very specifically. You can't drink alcohol, but you can go out and kill people. That's a very strange juxtaposition. Now, it should be said that the requirement to sign up for selective service to get federal financial aid is no longer the case. Oh, they've actually gotten rid of that. Yeah. One of the people on our Western Friend Board has been active in getting the military and recruiters out of high school. And she has um, informed me that that is no longer the case. The real reason I have you here, Lucretia and Molly, is because I think there are going to be listeners out there who are just wondering... How do I exist? How do, and, and really, with this tremendous split we have in our country right now, how do you exist as a person of principle, of faith, of pacifism, a person who's justice and peace oriented? How do you live side by side, peaceably and effectively with people who have very, very different views? Any key experiences of your lives, either Lucretia or Molly, that say, yeah, I can be effective. This can be a moment for change. I can be unchanged in the face of such pressure. Well, one experience that we had here at Great Falls was when the Iraq war looked like it was coming, we started having a peace vigil. We got all sorts of fingers and shouts of dismay at us for participating or thinking that we should not be doing this to Iraq. And as we stood there every week for seven years, by the end of that, people started coming up and saying thank you. You were right. I don't know if they would have said that and who was the person who did which and what happened. But having taken that stand, it's just the way it is. And that was one place that impacted my work world because one of the people that thought we were pretty horrible had a son that was one of my kids in my school that I did counseling with. And there were some pretty big issues in that family that I was dealing with. And we went to a conference one time and the father said to his wife, the mother of the son, I can't sit down at the same table with that woman. And the wife, thank goodness, could say, honey, you fought so that she could have the freedom to be who she is. And we are sitting at this table. And my principal was aware of the difficulty and very supportive of me. And the whole thing was about their child. It wasn't about where we were standing or protesting. And I think that was a biggie. But I think the biggest thing is just the involvement with loving kindness. There's been too many times, though, that <laughs> one of the people that has a leadership position in our town, I'm dismissed. I think it's interesting. I could be their friend and I could be kind and I'll be kind and I, they know where I stand, but then they just, I'm dismissed. That makes it easier not to deal with the whole issue of nuclear bombs or a military presence or the amount of money that's spent on the military. 
But I think you have to keep looking for the light in the other person. You have to. And I have some relatives that are on Facebook with me, and they're 180 degrees opposite almost on everything. It finally came down to a situation of something with the militia. And I looked up the militia my cousin was talking about, and it was doing target practice with the outline of human bodies. And I just had to say, even on Facebook, would you shoot me? And what would you shoot me over? And meanwhile, you just are nice and polite and keep going and see what happens. I've been unfriended by some longtime friends on Facebook, not because I'm obnoxious. I'm always very Quakerly, if you will. Just say, well, yeah, but I see this fact. I know this. And how about this? They unfriended me because they didn't want that. These are two women who it wasn't part of their worldview values. And so the siloing happens so extremely. I think it's unfortunate because if we can discuss as friends, we can possibly see a little bit further. What about for you, Molly? I'm going to tell a story about soccer. (laughs) So yeah, Lucretia's heard this one. The first day of my son being part of this very competitive team, he was an add-on and a lot of the other parents already knew each other. I had the luxury of staying at soccer practice. It was also a long way from home, so I didn't want to drive back and forth and back and forth. So my younger son was in the back seat doing his homework and my older son was doing his soccer practice. And I decided to meet some of the people on the sideline. And one woman was in the midst of telling and laughing heartily at a lot of really unbelievable to me comments about pacifists and what should happen to pacifists. And pacifists are best seen, you know, lying flat with tire tracks on them. And that wasn't the most vulgar or most violent by any measure thing that she thought. And everybody was har, har, har. And I was just, you know, my eyes were bugging out of my head and I was shaking. And I thought, oh my God, who are these people? And they, you know, what am I going to do? So I got back in the car and my younger son, you know, was headphones on doing homework. And I prayed and I said, you know, I need to know if we can do this. I need to know what to do. It was pretty clear that I was supposed to hold still and get calm. I knew already in my lifetime that calling people out in public in a situation like that doesn't really do any good. It can feel cathartic, perhaps, but it doesn't do any good. It isn't peacemaking, you know. So I waited and waited and waited. And there was a kid in my son's middle school who really loved guns and wore camo all the time. And his dad was into guns and his parents were divorced and his mom wasn't into it. But this kid was really unhappy. And it was my job, I decided, to say hello to him and give him a hug every time I saw him. And I was in the school a lot and he was in the principal's office a lot. And I sat next to him and I said, Ryan, how's it going? What's going on? I never asked him why you were sitting in this chair. You know, I'd ask him about everything else. So I said, I'm going to do the same thing with this woman. I'm going to simply befriend her. And I did. And our kids were both, you know, not top of the line players on that team, but pretty midland. You know, we talk about the wildlife in our yards and how much we love birds and cooking. And I learned about her experiences as a veteran of the Iraq war and she lost her voice. She had a really, really super raspy voice from the fumes of burning off the oil. 
and what she had experienced. We were together on that team for probably three years. And at the end, I said something about being a pacifist. Now, I don't know that she ever put those two moments together, but she, by that time, she had trusted me with her son. I had driven in places and things like that. And so I hope I gave her another face to what pacifists are. You talk about her joking, Molly, uh, making jokes about pacifists being injured. Killed, actually. Yeah. I'm wondering if you actually have had any of that pointed directly at you. I, When we went into Afghanistan 2001, I was part of a group here called Just Peace from the Chippewa Valley. And we were organizing something, a local TV station asked for a representative to say something about it in the interview. I did. And as part of the interview, they asked me, well, what should we do if we don't go into Afghanistan? I said, there's other alternatives we should have explored before going to war. That's all I said. My wife was at home the next day and someone out of the blue called, since I'm the only person in the world named Mark helps me, they could find my phone number. They called our phone and said, it's Mark there. I want to talk to him. She said, no, do you want to leave a message? And he said, you tell him he should have gone up with the Twin Towers which seems incredibly excessive considering the little that I did say, but that kind of threat, we certainly had people yell at us when we're standing in the street. I've never had anyone threaten to beat me or shoot me or anything. What's the worst that's happened to the two of you? Well, for me, it was the soccer story. People have said things and whatever, but the soccer story was the one where I got, I mean, and it wasn't really aimed at me. Right. It was aimed at not me. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sure. And Lucretia, did you ever get confronted directly, threatened, scared, any of that kind of thing? No, not, you know, personally right now, I'm worried about someone shooting me kind of thing. I think that it was very hard professionally that day with that father being so upset with me and the situation that we had to deal with for the safety of his child. And the other time that was kind of a big deal And it wasn't a physical threatening, but it seemed big to me was I had set up after my church didn't want to hear about Star Wars. Then I went to the League of Women Voters and I set up a discussion on that was going to be a debate between a retired lieutenant colonel who thought Star Wars was nuts and somebody from the Pentagon. And the Pentagon had agreed that they would send somebody. But at the last minute in the last week, They called me personally from Washington, D.C. This is the Pentagon, and we understand you want our lieutenant colonel to debate this other lieutenant colonel who is a jerk, whatever they said negative about him. And we just do not do any debates, and we will withdraw him from this whole thing. Well, I'd already gathered up a whole town full of people to watch this. And I just said, well, if he doesn't show up, there's always the newspaper to tell how you operate. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know where that came from, but I remember that moment with great anxiety. But at the same time, that's what I had to do. And I turned around and I just loved my family so much that evening. I remember it was so nice to have my family right there behind me. So (laughs) in the end, it was agreed that he would come, but he would not debate. So they'd each give their own talk separately. Well, that was the compromise. So I think my most vulnerable feeling moment was in 1982, which was the year I became a war tax resistor. So as part of a war tax resistance group, 
we decided I would be the point person for that. I was going to walk in, and the day that we were going to do our major witness, April 15th, the whole group was going to carry in food, which was more value than what I owed in taxes. They're going to haul it in. I'm going to go in and say, I'd like to pay my taxes in food so it can't be used for bullets or guns or whatever. I walk in, and here are six six foot something, six foot four men standing with their arms crossed in front of the IRS door waiting to get me. I definitely felt intimidated, but I still went right up to them because uh, that's the kind of person I am. And they said, you can't go in there because, you know, you can't get political stuff inside. And I said, no, I just want to check and make sure which window I'm supposed to present my tax thing to. And they said, well, that's fine if you go in there, but you can't carry those. And I had some handouts that we were going to do. And I said, oh, okay, well, would you just hold these for me while I go in? And the guy pulled his hands away. He was so scared. He wouldn't want to touch the seditious literature that advocates for peace. So I, he just had me set it down. I went inside and I checked. That's what I was going in for at that moment. It was all very interesting because I was very invested in the peace part of it. And yet the government was clearly scared that if the peace message got out to taxpayers, at least half of us would say, no, we're not going to pay 50% of our income tax for the military. That moment when I walked in and saw the six of them standing with their arms crossed there, that was my moment of loosening the bowels. (laughs) So for just a, a last comment or two, if we could, both Lucretia and Molly, Would you do it again, moving to this remote area, this place where you're a minority? Is this a good thing that it happened that you did this or not? And what would you say, Molly? Well, there are a lot of reasons why I moved to Colorado Springs, and they all remain good. I had asthma. I'm much healthier here. I wouldn't have had the nerve to have children in central Pennsylvania where I was because I wasn't healthy enough there. So, you know, like, yeah. As far as the military goes, I had worked for a military contractor in West Germany when there was a West Germany and had gotten a sense of that really blew my mind. And so I had learned a lot. But I also learned that soldiers are human beings often without very many choices. And they put their pants on one leg at a time like most other people. So I think there's that of God in all of them. So I'd be here to be me, you bet, because if I wasn't here, I mean, there are other people who are much more out there and doing bigger, louder things than I do. But I think my little everyday kind of, like Lucretia was saying, loving kindness does make a difference. And also, I really look at it. I certainly don't understand fully the impact of the military on this area because a lot of it's a secret, but I look at it and I digest it and I talk to people about it and try to make it just a tad more difficult to accept all the things that happen because the military says it's a good idea and bringing more military in. And, you know, and I was like, what is the return on investment with a bomb? Can we talk about that? So I'm here and I like being here. I've been able to do things here that I never would have been able to do anywhere else, not aside from having children. I like Colorado a lot. And Colorado Springs is kind of needs people like me. You know, it does. to kind of, And, you know, we say this in the piece, too, that, you know, some people kind of quietly agree with us. And, you know, say, I'm so glad you're here and that kind of thing. But 
I think I encourage other people to think about what we're doing and how we're doing it and to speak out. And, you know, the area has moved more toward diversifying its economy, you know, looking at those kinds of things. So, yeah, I'd move back here. And what about you, Lucretia? Here you are in, again, small town Montana. You've been there for lots of years now. Would you choose this path again? (laughs) That is my great, actually, that's unanswerable almost. The good news is I'm a loyal person. I'm glad I stayed married to my husband, but it has been exhausting for me. Our little Quaker group is only about 12 people. We just did our State of Society report yesterday, and it was very gratifying to hear how much people like the silence, like the integrity, like the truth that we all can tell and share. But I've never been able to move that leadership position to anybody else. It's a very mixed bag for me. I never was in love with, quote, cowboys and Indians as a kid. I thought, (laughs) and I must say that the Native American issues have been my sustaining part of being in Montana and understanding and working with some people in my school system, especially with Native American and promoting and helping and supporting and being my neighbor. But it's a dry place for my heart in many ways. And I've had to work very hard and I almost get tearful because I feel kind of crazy saying this. I really would like to go to some place and be in a bubble for a while. <laughs> well, I, I wish you could come and visit Eau Claire and be part of our bubble for a while. It's a, it is something of a liberal bubble for Wisconsin, but I I do understand that both of you have been doing valiant work in service of spirit. We talk that way in the Quaker world. A lot of people don't fully understand. You both have served as clerks of yearly meetings. And for listeners who are not Quaker, that means a large regional group, uh, including several states. You've both served the Quaker world in that way. You've raised children. You served as witness in your community. And for that, I both honor you and really welcome you as new friends. Thanks, Mark. That's nice. It's nice to meet you, too. And thank you, Lucretia, as well, of course. Good to see you, buddy. Folks, just keep in mind that I will have links on northernspiritradio.org to the article, Two Quakers Living with the Military, and I'll include a link to the Western Friend podcast, episode 11, Jonathan Stoll of Soul Force Ones. He interviewed them, and it's a wonderful, they've got additional stories and insights that you can get via that podcast. And thank you all today for joining us for Spirit in Action, and we'll see you again next week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 